0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Happy Resurrection Day. If you have your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to be opening to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. But Before we get there, before you begin to take any Notes of any sort. I just want your ear for a few minutes. Just lend me your ear. I want you to hear redemption's drama as it unfolds in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, day and night, space and time. Let there be an expanse called heaven or sky to separate the upper waters from the lower waters. Let there be dry land called earth and waters called seas. Let the earth sprout vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees. Let there be lights in the heavens separating the day from the night, and there were sun and moon and stars. Let the waters teem with living creatures, and the sky be filled with birds that fly across the expanse of the heavens. Let the earth bring forth living creatures and livestock and creeping things and beasts. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds and, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a great sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place With flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, and she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said to his wife, We must hide from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, saying to him, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above the beasts of the field, for on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise your heel. Which, by the way, is the very first preaching of the gospel in your Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. How great it was in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them. God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And in the same region, there were shepherds out keeping the field watching over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As one trespass or as one sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's, that's Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, that is Jesus Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased. Abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was despised and rejected by men. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In the darkness of night, as Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face. And he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for a second time, he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And being in agony, he prayed one more time earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as he was there in the pale-lit garden. There, under the cover of night, Jesus was betrayed and arrested. The next morning, he was bounced back and forth between Caiaphas and Pilate until Pilate, wishing to wash his hands of what he thought was a phony Messiah, delivered Jesus over to the soldiers to be beaten and then crucified. Jesus, tied up like a horse to a wooden post, was beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails, which is a leather whip that is laced with pieces of metal and glass that was meant literally to rip flesh from bone. After he was beaten, the soldiers clothed him in purple linen and they shoved a crown of thorns over his brow and they saluted him, mocking him, saying, Hail the King of the Jews! And if that wasn't demeaning enough, they spit on him, pulled his beard, and struck him with a reed. Sentenced to death, Jesus was made almost like the procession of a parade to carry his own cross through the city until he could physically carry it no longer. Simon of Cyrene was seized as he was coming into town, and he was made to carry the cross behind Jesus to the peak of Golgotha's hill. There, Jesus' body was laid over the cross and stretched out across its wooden beams as heavy-gauge nails were pounded through his wrist and through his feet. Every swing of the mallet brought blood-curdling screams. Tears mixed with the dried blood on his face fell from his eyes. That sign of mockery reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was affixed to the top of his cross as the cross was then resurrected or raised. About the third hour, that is 9 a.m. on Good Friday morning, Jesus was raised between two common criminals. And there he hung, gasping for breath for six hours while darkness covered the land. And about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. on Friday, when the sun's light had failed to shine, Jesus in agony cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After refusing drink, he called out again in a loud voice saying, It is finished. And he gave up his spirit. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that's not the end of the story, friends. There's nothing good about Friday apart from Sunday. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared for Jesus' burial. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men appeared to them standing in dazzling apparel." And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them similar words that were said to those shepherds. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen as he said. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You, My friends, and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What a story. What a story. And it's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not something that's just written in a child's book. It's truth and it's reality. It's historical fact. And what you do with that story will divide eternity for you. You know, many times in Scripture, great difficulties precede special works of God You can even say that God wins his greatest victories in what appears to be apparent defeat. When Jesus was crucified and placed in a tomb, it looked as if the forces of evil had triumphed. However, it was in this very time of apparent defeat that Jesus rose triumphant over sin and over death, and the victory of our salvation was won. You see, in our text for this morning, Paul will set our gaze squarely upon our risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning King, Jesus Christ. Let me have you, if you're able this morning, to stand with us as we read God's word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, pens the following words. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to His working, according to His great might, which He worked in us in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. Our text this morning is a little bit different than your typical or your ordinary resurrection texts. You see, rather than telling the narrative or rather than telling the story of the resurrection, what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, is he takes the resurrection reality and he applies it to our lives as believers. You see, Paul has spent the entire first chapter of his letter to the church at Ephesus recounting the spiritual blessings that belong to believers as a result of their union, as a result of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, if you were here with us, we ended with Paul praying that the Ephesian believers would know and they would understand, that they would appropriate, that they would live in light of God's immeasurable power that works in their lives and God's immeasurable power that works in your life if you know him savingly. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates the question, yeah, but but how powerful, Paul? How powerful is God's immeasurable power? What does it mean for me? What does God's Im- immeasurable power, the greatness of his immeasurable power, do for me today as I seek to walk with Christ? And so Paul begins in verse 23. He points us, to the power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. If you're taking notes this morning, write this in in point number one. Jesus is risen. And then out to the side, I want you to add this comment, in power. Jesus is risen in power. I want to back you up to verse 19 for just a second. We need to have a running head start here. Look down at your Bibles with me. Verse 19. Through the first phrase of verse 20, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's what Paul wants us to know. That's what he wants us to understand. According to the working of God's great might, which he worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. Jesus is risen in power. You know, Jesus predicted his resurrection during his earthly ministry here. He told his disciples this. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I mean, early on, this thought must have sounded preposterous to Jesus' feeble band of followers. I mean, for centuries... The model was people are born and people die. People are born and people die. Birth and death, birth and death, birth and death. And now Jesus steps on the scene and he says, they're going to kill me, but I will rise on the third day. Must have sounded a bit odd to Jesus' disciples. It was obviously no power of earth. But what power could possibly accomplish such a miracle? Well, Paul tells us. That it was God's immeasurable power, the working of His great might that raised God from the dead. Friends, God has great power at His disposal. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We'll learn more about that in Ephesians chapter 3. The decisive demonstration of God's power available to believers occurred at the resurrection. You want to know how much power there is available for you to live the Christian life? All we need to do is look at the resurrection where God exerted, God demonstrated his power by raising Jesus' cold, lifeless body from a rock tomb. That's, we, we, we just need to look there. You know, the stone was rolled away from the tomb Not to let Jesus out. I mean, Jesus had walked through walls just prior to his death. The stone was rolled away from the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. To let us in. Though in Jesus Christ we've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we aren't yet freed from the presence of sin. Think about this. I hope you know this well. Every single morning that we wake up as believers, we wake up behind enemy lines. You live in a hostile world. Every morning that you wake up, you wake up behind enemy lines. The Christian life is war. So let me, let me try to make this a little bit practical for you here. What, what, does, what do I need Jesus' resurrection power for in my daily Christian life? Well, friends, if you are in Christ, if you are united to him savingly, then you have three mighty opponents. You know who those opponents are? You know who those foes are? The world, the flesh, and the devil. John writes this in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, they are not from the Father, but they're from the world. And the world is a formidable foe to you. What is it about the world? Well, John tells us that we're, we're tempted by the lust of our flesh. It refers to those sinful longings of, of, of pleasure, of physical pleasure. It could be sexual sin, it could be alcohol, it could be gluttony. But we wake up every morning and there is the pull and tug of the flesh. We need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to do battle with the flesh. We need the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ to do battle with the world. I mean, think about the lust of the eyes. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father of above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. You see, we need to be careful that we don't just sing the song to our children, but we realize its implications and applications on our own life. Oh, be careful, little eyes. Oh, be careful, midlife eyes. Oh, be careful, later in life eyes, what you see. We live in a world that incessantly sells the need for therapeutic entertainment and sexual gratification and materialism. I mean, you can't even walk, you you can't even drive down the road without being bombarded by billboards and ads. You You can't open a magazine or a newspaper. You can't turn on the TV. You can't even stand at the checkout aisle at the local grocery store without the temptation to long after something that you do not currently have. The world constantly bombards us with its values. You're constantly being fed the lie that what you have isn't enough. And the lust of the eyes is never satisfied. Because once we get what we think we need, we think we need something else. The pride of life. One pastor comments, he says, The world is where pride in possessions is commended, and a haughty, selfish ambition is considered a virtue rather than a vice. The world. It's tempting. It pulls. Bombards you with its system, with its ideology. The flesh, a constant pull. We've been redeemed from the penalty of sin. We've been redeemed from the power of sin. Yes, you've been given a new heart if you know Christ. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit in you. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. Yes, that was a promise given to national ethnic Israel, but we see the same language reappear in the New Testament. A new heart, a redeemed heart, but yet you have not been freed from the bondage of the sinful flesh that you live in. Temptation, the pull. How about the devil? Many regard Satan as laughable. Just a cartoon character that, that, that has a sinister grin and carries a pitchfork. But we need to remember that when Satan met our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, it wasn't a laughing matter. He's cunning and crafty. Peter calls him our adversary. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Satan is characterized as being on the prowl. We as believers are his prey. He would love to devour us. He would love to compromise our influence in this world and to cause us to live fruitless lives. What's our weapon against such a foe? I'll submit to you that our weapon is the Word of God. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus combat Satan in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness? With the Word of God. Let me challenge you here, friends. How can you use a weapon that you don't possess? If you don't have God's Word hidden deeply in your heart and memorized in your mind, you are stepping to the front line of a battle that you have no weapon to fight. Does God's Word have preeminence in your life? Are you hiding it in your heart that you might not sin against Him? All the power in the world is available to you. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is available to you. Do you need power to fight sin and temptation? There's resurrection power available for you. Do you need power, gentlemen, to love your wives as Christ loved the church? There's resurrection power available for you. Wives, do you need power to submit to your husbands? There's resurrection power available to you. Parents, do you need power to stop losing it with your kids and to give them grace? There's resurrection power for you. Do you need power to share your faith boldly and to be a strong, clear witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? There's resurrection power available to you. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is made available to us who believe. You know, you, th- you think about our enemies, you think about the force of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. How are we believers to be victorious over such great enemies? How are we to triumph over such strong forces and temptations? Paul wants us to know that it is through the power of God displayed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have any hope of living the victorious Christian life. In other words, without God's resurrection power, the Christian life is unlivable. the resurrection also should empower us as believers to live boldly for Christ. You struggle there to live boldly for Christ, to be a strong, clear witness and testimony for him in the world in which you live. You battle fear and anxiety. What will they think? What will they say? What if they ask me a question I don't know? What if they harm me physically? I mean, we are living in a world where that is becoming increasingly the the norm and not the exception. Jesus said it would be that way, by the way. It shouldn't surprise us when we turn on the news and when we read the newspaper and we see what's going on around the world. And it shouldn't surprise us when we see it happening even more and more and when we see it crossing over into our land and crossing over our border more and more. The resurrection should empower us as believers to live boldly for Christ. I mean, followers of Christ throughout redemptive history have faced the tyrant's brandished steel. They've faced the lion's gory mane. They've faced the fires of a thousand deaths all because they were utterly convinced that they, just like their master, would one day rise from the grave in glorified, resurrected bodies. You believe that? It's the person who believes that that praises God and prays for the very people that are burning them at the stake. Such is the case of many of our missionary martyrs that have gone before us. Great boldness for Christ. Why? Because we believe, we're convinced that just like our master, we will one day rise from the grave. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus is ruling Jesus is ruling, and I want you to write out next to this, in might. He's risen in power, but Jesus is ruling in might. Let me draw your attention to the back half of verse 20. Just this short phrase, And God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's mighty strength was not exhausted at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead exalted him to the highest rank and enthroned him as heaven's high king. Notice the fact that Jesus is seated. Those are details that we might be tempted to gloss over as we're reading our Bible or as we're having a quiet time. Jesus is seated here, the back half of verse 20. What does that mean? Well, it points us to the fact that his earthly task was complete. There's a glaring comparison that Paul highlights in this short phrase here. You see, the Old Testament priests were always spoken of as standing because their work was ongoing and it was never complete. But Jesus, on the other hand, after becoming a sacrifice for us and rising triumphantly over sin and death, he sat down. The writer of Hebrews captures this beautifully for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, namely his own self, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time when his enemy should be made a footstool under his feet. He's seated, friends. His work is through. The work of redemption is complete. The cross could not hold him The grave could not keep him. He is risen. He is exalted. He is heaven's high king. I hope he's your high king. Where Jesus sat down, the right hand of God is just as significant as the fact that he sat down. Thinking about the right hand here, it's a beautiful metaphor for the place of highest honor, highest authority, highest power, and highest glory. Again, the writer of Hebrews asks this, to to which of the angels, who who of you angels, did God ever say, be seated at my right hand? Implication, none. For Jesus to be seated at God's right hand means that he shares his Father's throne. You think about this. The Bible says, if we know Christ savingly, that we will one day reside in glory with him and we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that. But do you know what your Bible never says? It never says that you'll be seated at God's right hand. As redeemed, glorified saints, we will rule and reign with the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, but your Bible scripture never says that we will be seated at the right hand. Of the throne of God. I mean, think about this. Angels rise and fall prostrate in the presence of God, but they are never seated at His right hand. That place is reserved exclusively for the ruling Jesus Christ. Jesus is risen in power, and all that power is available to you. You must know and must understand that, Paul says, if you want to live the Christian life victoriously. We must know that Jesus is in heaven. Not only has he been resurrected, but he has also ascended. He has also been exalted to the highest place. He's seated at the Father's right hand, ruling in majesty, ruling in might. We must know that. Thirdly, we must know, we must understand that Jesus is reigning, and you can write this out by the side, in majesty. Jesus is reigning in majesty, risen in power, ruling in might, reigning in majesty. Let me draw your attention to verse 21. Paul says, speaking about Jesus, that he's been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What Paul is telling us here is that God's power is further demonstrated in the fact that God has exalted Jesus far above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. Friends, there is no opposing force in the universe over which Jesus does not reign. None. There is no force in the universe over which our resurrected, ruling, reigning Lord Jesus Christ does not supersede over. I mean, we're not talking about a regional dominion here. We're not talking about a geographical dominion. Every level of power in the universe is subordinate to and subservient to the risen, reigning Christ who sits enthroned in heaven and exercises cosmic dominion. In the context here of the Christian's struggle to live the daily life, which is the context of verses 20 through 23, the emphasis of verse 21 is upon the hostile spiritual powers and subsequent corrupt world system that opposes us as believers. Again, you wake up every morning behind enemy lines. You're not home yet. You're in between the already and the not yet seated in the heavenlies, but yet waiting to be seated in the heavenlies. We're in the middle of the already but not yet. There are hostile spiritual powers that oppose us as believers, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we have great encouragement as believers that we have at our disposal the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that we might live the Christian life in a way that honors and pleases God. See, by his death, Jesus canceled the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He accomplished that by nailing it to the cross. By his resurrection, he disarmed the rulers, he disarmed the authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. But by his exaltation, by his ascension into glory, he rules over every rule, over every authority, over every power, and over every dominion. His exaltation position is superior to all conceivable hostile powers. The whole hierarchy of authorities, including death, which is our last enemy, is subject to the risen and exalted King Jesus. Paul goes on to say that Jesus has been enthroned above every name that is named. That is, above every name of excellence, above every name of honor. Above every creature that bears the label of king or prince or potentate or president or ruler or whatever title he may be called by. Pick any name from all of history, from all people, from all times, from all regions, from all continents and all governments. And Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ is above them all. Sinful man humiliated and crucified Jesus, but God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall hit the deck and confess that he is Lord. And what's the duration of Jesus' sovereign rule and reign? Paul says that he will reign not only in this age but also in the age to come. You see, the reign of Christ is superior over every other name of renown, not only in this present age, but also for eternity. Friends, that is days without end. Not only now, but also in the future. What Paul is telling us there is for all time. For days without end, our risen King Jesus exercises supreme authority, supreme power, supreme rule, and supreme dominion. Now, let me bring it down to your heart. Does he have supreme reign, supreme rule, supreme dominion over your heart? You can bow a knee now, or you can bow a knee later, Philippians chapter 2. But everything that has breath will bow a knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If You don't know him savingly. If you are not connected in a vital way to him, in union with him, just as the branches are connected to the vine, then I implore you on Christ's behalf, repent where you sit. Come to Christ. Cast yourself upon His matchless mercy and grace. Today is the day of salvation. Fly to Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, the promise is you'll be saved. And friends, that's a promise you can take to the bank. Do you know Him? Is he ruling and reigning over your heart? Let me just make this as a side note. It's not in my notes, but I think it's important to note. We don't make Jesus Lord when we submit our lives to him. That would be giving to him or ascribing to him a title that is inherently already his. His. When a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what they do is surrender to the fact that he is Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him that. It's not a title or a designation which we bestow upon him. That's a title and a designation that the Father has bestowed upon the Son. He is Lord. Not only now, but also in the age How comforting is this, friends? We need have no fear of the future. The fact that Jesus is reigning should bring massive comfort to our hearts and to our souls because it means that the world that you live in, though it is broken as a result of the fall, is under the sovereign control of the One, capital O, who will bring his sin-defeating work to its ultimate and glorious conclusion need not fear. I need not fear. God reigns supreme. He's the sovereign of the universe. All things will be summed up in him, and every remaining enemy, even death, will be defeated to the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proclaims he lives, and that forevermore. But Jesus' ascension or his exaltation is being seated at the right hand of the Father. That proclaims he reigns, and that forevermore. Fourth and last this morning, I want to draw your attention to the fact, though it's not explicitly stated in the text, you'll see how we get here, that Jesus is returning in glory. Jesus is returning in glory. Let me draw your attention to verses 22 and 23. Paul says, And he, God, will put all things under his feet and give him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, these two verses here are a picture of a reigning monarch sitting on an elevated throne with his subjects at his feet. Jesus is that reigning monarch. The language that Paul uses here is actually taken from Psalm 8, which was penned by the hand of David. David writes this, it's probably a familiar text to many of you, but he says, when I look at your hands, when I I survey the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, that is man, you and me, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him, this is speaking of us, Psalm 8, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. You see, David writing in Psalm 8 applies dominion and everything being put under our feet. Psalm 8 points back to the authority that God bestowed upon our original parents in Eden when he gave them dominion over all the works of his hands. Man was made to have dominion over the earth. Here's the problem, friends. We failed. We failed to properly execute our role and responsibility. Sin and death entered into the world as a result of Adam's disobedience. And that sin shattered our relationship with God, and it destroys our ability to live out our God-intended purpose. But Jesus. I always love when there's buts in Scripture. But Jesus, friends, the greater Adam, the second Adam, restored for us and in us by union with him all that sin had broken. You see, although the complete fulfillment of these words haven't yet been, haven't yet come to fruition, the fulfillment of these words, everything being put under our feet, will come to fruition when death is destroyed once and for all and we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater and the second Adam. In closing this morning, let me say just a few brief words concerning the remainder of verse 23. Look, Paul says that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. let Let me say this. Syntactically, in the original language, This is an incredibly difficult verse to translate. Matter of fact, if you were to go this afternoon uh, and to look at commentaries, you would find a lot of varied translations. It's a complicated phrase. We try to just do a little bit of justice to it by making or noting a few truths. Number one the immeasurable greatness of god's power as demonstrated in raising jesus christ from the dead and exalting him above every other power and name is available to a particular people look it's the church it's not available to everyone without exception the resurrection power of jesus christ is available to the church To Christ's body, which by the way, this is the very first time, I don't know if you've noticed, that Paul uses the word church in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, he has described the church in numerous terms, but this is the first time that he uses the word church here. And he says that the church is Christ's body. You see, Jesus Christ is exalted over all spiritual forces of evil as its conqueror, but he is also exalted over the church as its greatly honored head. He is the head, we who know him savingly are his body. Just as the bridegroom is not complete without the bride, and the vine is not complete without the branches, and the shepherd is not complete without the sheep, the head is not complete without the body, so the church, I think Paul is telling us here, is in a sense the complement to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we are the reward for his suffering. We are his prized, and treasured possession, not because of us, but in spite of us. Because he laid down his life for us, spilled his precious blood for us. Our Lord Jesus has an inexplicable and unfathomable love for us in that he sees himself as a a groom, incomplete without us, his bride. Now, it's important. There's a lot that needs to be said in that one statement. Here's, Here's what you need to know. Jesus is not lacking ontologically. He's not lacking in and of himself. He is complete in himself. He is full in himself. But there is a sense in which the church is a complement to him and he is a complement to us. He fills us, we fill him. Again, there are sermons upon sermons upon sermons that probably need to take place now to do some justice to that very statement. But here's what you need to know. The, The glorious design of the church... God has designed it such that we are complement to Christ and he is complement to us. We won't even empty that mystery in all eternity. Though the text doesn't explicitly state it here, we'll land the plane here. The implication is that Jesus Christ, who purchased the church... His body and his bride at the expense of his own blood is going to return for her that she might be with him where he is. Do you remember what Jesus was praying there in the garden in John chapter 17 just prior to sweating drops of blood? He prayed, Father, I pray that you would grant them to be with me where I am, that they may be with me and see my glory. And so by implication, when Paul speaks of the church, the body of Christ, we are to remember, to be reminded that our bridegroom is coming back for us. He's going to part the clouds and he's going to step back into the world in which he created. And he's going to gather up his own to take us where he is. That is our great hope. What other fear could we have? I'll never forget listening to a John Piper sermon as a young believer. When Piper made this statement, he said, He said, what is the worst that someone can do to me? All you can do is kill me. All you can do is take my life. To which he replied, go ahead, dispatch me to paradise. Our great hope is the return of our risen, ruling, reigning king. Friends, Paul wants us to know that until we arrive safely home, the immeasurable greatness of God's power as demonstrated in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ is available to us moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, this side of eternity. It's available to us to live the Christian life.